If you want to, you can open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be bouncing around the Scriptures this morning. We will uh, we'll start with, with Genesis 1 here in just a minute. Uh, we're starting a, a, a new very short sermon series this morning, just a two-part uh, series on uh, providence. And uh, if you don't know what that word means, hopefully by the end of the sermon you will have an idea about what I mean when I use this word uh, providence. It's not actually a biblical word you find in the Bible, but concept, the reality of providence is shot through the entire Bible, and I hope we'll encounter it over uh, and over again this morning. Um, has anybody seen a movie called Killer of Sheep? I didn't think so. Uh, so this, this film came out in 1977 and actually didn't receive a wide distribution until just a few years ago. Uh, this film was directed by a man named Charles Burnett, and it tells the story of a family in Watts, uh, 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 L.A., in the 1970s. Um, and this, is the, this, this film uh, depicts what life was like for this family and their community in this uh, section of L.A., in this, in this uh, neighborhood of Watts. And, uh, and it was a, it's, a, it's a hard depiction of life. It was a pretty realistic depiction of life. Uh, the film opens, you can put up the slide here, the, the film opens with um, Stan, who is the central character in this film, who is a father and a husband, uh, it opens with Stan talking firmly to his uh, son. His, his son has just observed um, his, his brother, his younger brother, getting beat up in a fight. And, and I want to read to you what Stan says to his oldest son. It's probably in fifth or sixth grade, I would imagine. He says, um, you let anyone jump on your brother again, and you just stand and watch, and boy, I will beat you to death. I don't care who started what or whether he was winning or losing. Well, you get a brick, get anything, and you knock the mm out of whoever is fighting your brother. Because if anything was to happen to me or your mother, you don't have anybody except your brother. He goes on to say, you're not a child anymore. You soon will be a man. Now start learning what life is about now, son. Now start learning what life is about now. Regardless of whether uh, you grew up in Watts in the 70s, or whether your experience was incredibly different than that of Stan and his family, my guess is that each of us can in some way relate to what Stan is saying. If anything is to happen to your mother or I, you're on your own up to you to watch out for yourself and for your brother. No one else is going to do it for you. It's time to learn what life is about. Again, my assumption is that each of us inhabit a world that says this to us. This is what life is about. This is how the world works. This is a world where it's every person for themselves. 
This is a world with winners and losers. Sometimes these winners and losers are grouped together by gender or class or race. But this is how the world works. You better watch out for yourself because nobody else is going to do it for you. And this film is a tragedy because something in us knows that this is not how it's supposed to be. Even though we can relate to it, even though on some level we go, yeah, I get it. I know why you're saying that. I can tell my own stories in that vein. The film is tragic. And the only reason it can be tragic is if you and I know that there's a different way to live. The only reason this can be a tragedy is if we look at Stan's life and know that there's another possibility. Despite all evidence to the contrary. What I want to do for us this morning is hold up sort of this assumed way of how the world works. The one that all of us have experienced. And a different way of understanding how the world works. One that's rooted in the scriptures and begins in Genesis. And Genesis chapter 1 is the story of God creating the heavens and the earth. The first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day. And every day God looks at what he's created and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He gets to humanity, he creates Adam and Eve, and he says, it's very good. And then he rests on the seventh day. This is the story of of Genesis 1. And then we find this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 through 30. God is speaking to Adam and to Eve, to humanity. He says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the sky, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so. There's at least two things that I see when I read these verses. The first is that God's provision is for all of God's creation. We human beings can be rather arrogant and we like to think that God is on our side, taking care of us. But what do we see in this passage? God's provision is for all of God's creation. God says, I'm giving you this world and this creation to take care of your needs, Adam and Eve, and for all of the animals as well. I give them every plant as well. God's provision is for all of God's creation, which means that when God creates the world, God doesn't create the world with scarcity. A world without. This is a world with. That has enough for all that God has created. We could say this. God is able to care for all that God creates. Amen? God is able to care for all that God creates. And we see that in these first verses. And then the second thing that I observe here is that God's provision is behind all of the ways that creation is cared for. 
God's provision or God's providence is behind all of the ways that creation is cared for. You see, what we, see, what we notice in this passage is that God doesn't just occasionally break into our normal life to miraculously provide our needs, right? When we think about God's providence, God's provision, God taking care of us, God meeting our needs, don't we often think of that? God's not reaching into our normal lives. Things are kind of normal, natural, and then God supernaturally does something for us. It's the exception. It's not how to work most of the time. But here we see, built into the fabric of how the world works is God's provision. Not exceptional, but just normal. God is providing not just through miraculous occasional encounters, but into the normality of our world. This is in contrast to Stan's world and Watts. This is in contrast to the world that you and I regularly experience. Genesis instead is describing a world where God is in control all the time. So I would say it this way, providence is woven into the fabric of creation. It's built into God's creation. Providence, God's care, God's provision is simply a part of the world. And there's an interesting result of this providence being built into the world. Adam and Eve, humanity, are active in response to God's providence. Which I think we just need to to, to, to set on the table here for a minute. Because when we think about a world that is, it is Uh, built to provide for all of our needs, when we think about a God who's created a a world that is meant to provide for all of our needs, don't we, don't we, if we're honest, kind of get this idea of us just kind of sitting back and soaking it in? Well, God's taking care of us, right? Like the world is built to meet our needs, to care for us. Oh, and kick back. Adam and Eve, though, are active in response to God's providence. What does God say? God said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the creation. Adam, work the garden and care for it. This calling, this commission, this work is not done out of scarcity. It's not done out of a need to meet needs that won't be met otherwise. Isn't that how we think about our work most of the time? No, this work is done as a response to a world built around God's provision. Adam and Eve are active. They work. They participate with God in the care of God's world because the providence of God is built into the creation itself. God's activity, God's promise to bless the world is the motivation behind Adam and Eve's efforts. 
So maybe we could say it this way. Adam and Eve's activity becomes an expression of God's provision for the world. Adam and Eve's activity expresses God is providing for the world. It's evidence of God's provision, of the providence of God. So, is this how we think about God's provision? Is this how we think about God providing for all of our needs, caring for us? I'm going to answer for you. No. Most of us, most of the time, live as if success in this life is just up to us. That getting what we need, that getting ahead, that meeting our needs is our job. When do we expect God to show up? Say it louder. When we're in trouble. When things get desperate. Say amen if you know what we're talking about. We expect God to show up not when things are going fine. Not when all our needs seem to be met. We're not necessarily thinking that this is God's provision for us. No, we get down on our knees and plead for God's provision when the wheels fall off. When things get desperate. I think we see this with Peter, poor Peter. We always use him as a bad example. Peter's on the fishing boat with his other disciples. It's a huge storm comes up, and it's nighttime is dark, and these kind of burly, uh, 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 savvy fishermen, they're freaking out. They think they're going to die. And who comes walking across the water? Jesus. Right? And Peter says, if it's really you, let me walk out on the water with you. And Jesus says, Come on, right? Come on. So Peter steps out on the water, walks out on the water, is having apparently a really good time until what? You remember? He sees the storm. And then he starts to sink. Oh, now I need help. I was good walking on the water because that's normal. I do that all the time. That's when I'm sinking when things are desperate that Peter cries out, Lord, save me. This is our experience. We're not aware that most of the time we're walking on the water. Oh, this is up to I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who made this happen. Until things get desperate. Lord, save me. So this film, Killer of Sheep, portrays the the very real world, the world that we recognize and can relate to on some level, whereas Genesis describes a world that might seem appealing but feels completely disconnected from our experience. Really, a world where the provision, providence of God is just built into the fabric of our everyday existence? So, so why? Why is this? Why is it that the, the version of life portrayed in the killer of sheep kind of feels more normal to us, whereas Genesis kind of can feel like a fairy tale? It feels like something that's out of reach that we can't really relate to. 
um, after the garden, you most you remember that Adam and Eve get kicked out. The garden can no longer sustain them because they've come to doubt the goodness of God. They've believed a the lie and built their lives around that. And so they leave the garden. God does not leave them. And the story of Genesis is of God calling a, a man, Abraham, and then a family, and then a nation to God's self saying, I want to use it to bless the world. I want to, I want to use you, Abraham, nation of Israel, in order to bless the world. This family, though, by the end of Genesis, is in Egypt. There's been a famine in the land, and so they end up in, in Egypt. And things are going okay for a time. But then we find in Exodus chapter 1 that, well, they're getting big. This little family's not little anymore. It's a big family, and it's making the Egyptians nervous. In verse 3, we read, So they, the Egyptians, put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. This is a very different picture of the world than we see at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis 1 portrays this world built by, sustained by the providence of God. Exodus chapter 1 portrays a world of oppression is the word that the author uses. And so maybe this seems a little dramatic, but I want to say this morning that the opposite of a world built on the providence of God is a world built on oppression. And this is what the Hebrew slaves are experiencing. A world that doesn't feel as if the providence of God is holding all things together. Where their Egyptian taskmasters hold their lives together. So now rather than God being them, it's the slave masters above them, the text says. Rather than working in response to God's provision, as we saw in Genesis, now they're working in response to fear, in response to punishment, in response to consequences. Rather than experiencing God's blessings as image bearers of God, now they are used ruthlessly, the text says, for what they can provide. This is a very different vision of the world, would you agree, than we see in Genesis chapter 1. But again, isn't this just how our world works? It's ugly for us to admit it, but isn't this how our world works? Survival of the fittest. A world that seems without God or abandoned by God. A world of limited resources where there will be winners and losers. It's up for me to provide for me no matter what it does to you. This is how the world works. This is how life in Egypt is experienced. I want to say that this view, this understanding, this experience of the world isn't limited to the children of Israel as they are in bondage. It's not limited to those who have uh, experience what it is to be oppressed by someone over top of them as 
these people have experienced. This view of the world is pervasive. It permeates our world. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much power or influence you have. This view of the world permeates. And so even even in the past few weeks, we hear people talking about the fact that everything they have, they have worked for, that they have earned through their diligence and their hard work, and if everybody would just do that, they would be okay. You see, it's the same understanding of how the world works. It's up to me to get mine, no matter what happens to you, a world of winners and losers. We hear this in the language of the Pharaoh, the wealthy, powerful Pharaoh who would seem to be secure, would seem to have enough, would not seem to have reason to be afraid of these foreigners in his land. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, he says, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. If war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So if the first vision of the world that we find in Genesis is the providence of God, this second vision of a world of oppression permeates from the Hebrew slave children to the Pharaoh himself. This vision, this experience, an oppressive world becomes all-consuming. This was the genius of the serpent back in the garden. The genius of the the serpent wasn't that he got Eve and Adam to do something wrong. The genius was that the serpent, that evil, got Adam and Eve to question the very goodness of God. Is this how the world works? Did God really create a world where you will be provided for, where God has your best interest in mind, is that really what God is up to? Is God really good? And from this start point, humanity begins marching away from a world of providence, a world of oppression. Is God really good? Does God really for us? Does God just want to use you? When we live within this oppressive world, when we buy in to this way of thinking about the world and our lives, we become blind to God's provision. God doesn't stop providing for us. God's not defeated in the garden. But we become blind to providence. We can't see it anymore. Uh, Maybe this is most clearly seen in Exodus when the children of Israel, they're liberated from their captivity through miraculous ways, if you remember the story, right? Would have you been impressed by this 
rescue, this liberation, the things that God had done, the plagues that God poured out. Do you remember the story? Nod your head if you're with me. It was impressive, right? It's not normal. It would stand out in your memory, yes. You would tell your grandchildren about it, maybe. God had provided an amazing, miraculous, surprising, convincing, undeniable ways God had provided. And they're out of Egypt for a few hours, and they come to the sea, you remember? How are we going to get through? They say to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? God had provided for them miraculously, and yet having lived within this oppressive way of thinking about the world, they forgot already. So God opens the seas, provides for them once again. And then not long after that, they begin to wonder, well, how are we going to eat? Where's our food going to come from? And so what do they say to Moses and the leaders? If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. A little melodramatic, maybe. It clues us into the way the world still works for them. Their understanding of how the world works. Provides again manna and quail. And then they get thirsty. So by now you think, right? Like, can we have some water, please? God, could you provide us something to drink? Because you've done all of this for us. So I know, I know. I'm not even going to worry about it. But we're thirsty. What do they say? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? world is an oppressive place. The world is not one of providence. Finally, they reach the promised land after having been provided for day after day after day after day. They send spies into the land who come back and report that there are giants in the promised land. If only, they say, we had died in Egypt or in the desert. You see what I'm saying here? Despite how many times God had provided for them in amazing, miraculous, sustaining ways, for them, this, the world was still an oppressive place. The world was not woven, held together with the providence of God. For many of us, it's absolutely no different. We live the exact same way. We live not as if God has provided for all of our needs, but as though we are an oppressed people who do not have a good God looking out for us. I don't know how often you think about the Tenth Commandment, I'm sure you all know exactly what it says. Don't covet. Thou shalt not 
covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I could be wrong. I'm guessing for most of us, this, we don't really, you know, the 10th commandment isn't sort of the one that we're worried about. Don't covet. But we do, don't we? We covet. We want what we don't have. Why? Why are we jealous of our friend's new marriage? Why are we resentful of another friend's job? Why do we attempt to raise our own status by slandering someone else's good name? Why do we covet? Why did this one make the top ten? The root of our wants, our lusts, our obsessions, our discontent is the conviction that it's up to us to provide for us. This is why we covet. This is what we, why we want what we don't have. This is why we're pretty sure that we know what's best for us. If I just had that, if I just had him, her, I'd be good. At the root of this covetousness, this lust of our discontent is a conviction that we know what we need and it's up to us to get it. And so regardless of how many times God has provided for you, how many times the Red Sea has been parted, how many times you've been provided manna or water in the desert, we continue to live under oppression rather than the providence of God. So here's one of the ways that this has played out for me over the past year or so. Uh, some of you know that um, I didn't set out to be uh, like the church planter, the pastor of our church. It wasn't sort of my lifetime goal. It didn't really make sense to me to be sort of the white pastor in a predominantly African-American neighborhood of a multi-ethnic church. It just seemed like it should be somebody else. I've told you that before. That's not a surprise to most of you. And so I have operated much of the time as if it really is up to me to make it work. I know what I'm lacking. I know what our church needs. And so, David, be a good pastor. Take care of this. Do a good job. And that, that's a tiring way to live if anybody can relate. It's a heavy way to live. And so what has God done for me? God has provided for me over and over again. God has put me in a denomination that has been committed to multi-ethnic church planting for decades now. That's not normal in other denominations. God has brought me to a, a spiritual director, an African-American woman who's much older than I am, who grew up on the South Side and can say things to me that I couldn't hear from anybody else, you understand, because of her knowledge, her wisdom, her experience. God has given me a church-planting mentor who has planted three urban multi-ethnic churches and who now teaches about church-planting around the country and around the world. 
God's given me a mentor who has written multiple books about racial reconciliation and who is recognized as one of the leaders in the multi-ethnic church movement. Would you agree that God has provided for me? And yet, why do I keep forgetting that? Why can't I remember that? So this week, I'm feeling discouraged. I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling once again like, I just can't. I don't have enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not experienced enough to do this. And on Tuesday, our day off, I get a phone call from some of our denominations saying, hey, tomorrow can you drive down to Indianapolis and, and, and help do this church plant seminar with some other people in, in our denomination? The person who was supposed to do it, like, you're not, they were saying, really not our first choice. <laughs> well, the person who's going to do it is sick, and you know, you don't live that far away from Indianapolis, so can you try to do this? And so I did, and, um, and it, it was a good day. Um, but at the end of it, after presenting for about four or five hours, I'm sitting on the back row, and I'm sitting next to a man named Henry Greenwich. And Henry is, I'll just, he's older than me. I'll leave it at that, okay? He's an African-American pastor. He planted in Oregon the first multi-ethnic church in our denomination 25 years ago. He's a sage. He's wise. He knows what he's talking about. And we're sitting on the back row, and the other guy's kind of wrapping up. And he just turns and he looks at me, and he, sa- and he says, you're going to be okay. I mean, I hadn't said anything. I hadn't, you know, like, tell him, I'm, I'm just, I hadn't said anything. He just goes, you're going to be okay. I'm like, oh. He said, it's, it, you're going to do this. And he says, I'm going to for you right now. Bring it. <laughs> Please. Do you hear what I'm saying? Over and over and over again, God has shown me in very personal ways that this world is held together by the providence of God. Now, this providence isn't just an abstract, out there sort of thing. It touches us. It holds us together. And we forget. And then God reminds us and shows us again and again and again. And here, for me, church, is the very good news. Despite how long we've got into this oppressive way of understanding the world, despite how we've lived into that and, 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 and expected this to be how the world works, despite how we've sinned against other people as a result of this, despite all of this, God's providence is still at play. God's still in control. God's still powerful. God is still holding all things together. And so Job can say, after having everything taken away from him, his family, his work, his health, everything taken away from him, what does Job say? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because for Job, God is holding all things together. God will provide for his needs. God is in control. 
This is what I think the psalmist is getting at as he's writing this poetry in Psalm 147, speaking of God. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for young ravens when they call. He strengthens the bars of your gate, blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your border and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. God does this for you. No matter what it looks like, no matter what lie you've believed, God is holding all things together. God is providing for every one of our needs. Even as you and I live in denial of God's providence, God continues to sustain. God continues to provide. God continues to advance God's purposes in the world. And that is good news. I want to put a very brief parenthesis here because I'm not, I can't spend time on this today. When we live not according to God's providence, when we live under this oppressive way of understanding the world, suffering is the inevitable result. Suffering not just for us, but for the world itself. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I'm putting in parentheses today because next week we're going to come back to that. Because for some of us, this whole conversation about providence, God's care, God's provision leads to these questions. What about suffering? Legitimate question. And, and we just, that's a whole nother sermon, okay? So next week we're going to say, what does it mean to live as if God is holding all things together? If the world is shot through with God's providence, what does that mean about suffering? Okay? Okay, is that okay? Can you, like, hang on to that for next week? Okay. I tried to put it all into this sermon, and we wish, wish not have been helpful. You all, we've been here way too long. So even as we live in denial of God's providence, God's providence continues to exist, hold all things together, advance God's purposes in the world. Here, here's the story that, for me, most captures this in the Scriptures. As we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the first book we get to is the Gospel of Matthew. The first part of the Gospel of Matthew is a genealogy, which we all love, right? Those are the portions of Scripture we memorize and like, oh, yeah, that's my life verse, right? <laughs> we skim over those parts, literally. Verse 3, Matthew chapter 1, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, this is Jesus' family tree, okay? This is Jesus' genealogy. So maybe we pay a little bit of attention to it, maybe. Who's Judah? Who are these boys? Who is Tamar? Some of you might remember the story. It's kind of an obscure one. It's a little odd. To refresh your memory, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has a lot of sons. One of them is named Judah. You with me so far? Judah. Judah marries a woman named Shua. Judah and Shua have three sons. Still with me? Okay? Judah and Shua have three sons. Judah and Shua's firstborn son marries a woman named Tamar. She's the one who's in the genealogy, Judah and Tamar. Judah and Shua's uh, firstborn marries Tamar. 
Tamar's husband, so Judah's firstborn son, Tamar's husband dies. Okay? So now, Judah tells his second son that he needs to fulfill his obligation to his deceased brother and make sure that Tamar has a child. Is everybody with me? I don't need to break that down anymore, right? Okay. Fulfill his obligation. Again, I'm not going to go into detail. You can read it yourself. Let's just say he doesn't. He acts like he does, but he doesn't. Okay? He dies. So now, Judah's firstborn son has died. Tamar's uh, uh, firstborn son has died. Tamar's first husband has died. Judah's secondborn son has died, right? That leaves one more son. Now, this son is responsible to make sure that the family tree advances through Tamar as well. Judah sends Tamar away, sends Tamar back to her father and says, when my son gets older, then he will fulfill his obligation. Are you still with me on this story? Yes? Okay. But it never happens. Judah never sends his third son to fulfill the obligation to his firstborn son. And this is a matter of honor and shame now for Tamar. She has been shamed. Her lineage, her first, her, her first husband's lineage will not continue. So what does she do? Makes perfect sense. She dresses up like a prostitute and stands beside a road where Judah is going to be passing through. Okay? And uh, Judah then solicits her services. Everybody with me still? Do you remember this story? Like, this wasn't one of the Sunday school stories, right, that you grew up with? Like, you do, like, the flannel graph thing with this one? Okay. <laughs> Judah solicits, you know, relations with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, but he doesn't know it's daughter-in-law, and she conceives twin boys. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. Whose mother, not whose wife, whose mother was Tamar. You see? These are Jesus' people. This is where Jesus comes from. This is Jesus' family tree. How do you draw that family tree? I don't know how that looks exactly, but that is where he comes from. Out of that mess, out of that dysfunction, out of people who were living not as if God was in control. God was meeting our needs, but no, as if this world, dog eat dog. I got to provide for my needs. It doesn't matter what happens to you. People living that way, God is still advancing God's mission in their lives. So that, as a result, Jesus, Jesus. Good news. And maybe this story is, is weird enough, it's hard to relate to, but let me just say, I think for most of us, we, we, can, we get this. Uh, maybe our families aren't exactly like that. I hope family's not exactly like that, but maybe it is. Maybe it's similar. Maybe the pain is similar to that. 
Maybe the shame that you feel thinking about where you came from is similar to that. And here's what Matthew does. Matthew takes our heads and he turns us back and he says, look at that. Look at that. God was at work there. God was present in that. God did not abandon you then. And now look where he took this. The Son of God coming from this line. Look back. Look back. Look back. Some of you do this. Some of you have stories where you can say, if you knew where I was. But it's not just if you knew where I was, it's if you knew how God was present with me then. If you knew how God was providing for me then, I couldn't see it then and I didn't know it then, but I can look back now and God was faithful, that God was active, that God was protecting me, that God was calling me forward into something new. God was present. When it didn't look like that, the providence of God was still active in my life. And for some of us, that is a daunting task to look back like this because the pain involved in looking back is heavy. It's a lot. I want to step out and say, God was there then. Whatever the then is for you, God was present then. God did not abandon you then. God did not forget about you then. God did not leave it up to you then. God was there then. And again, maybe for some of us, that's just a bridge too far today. Maybe for some of us, the yeah, but you don't know what it was. I get it. Okay. Let me just do it for you today. Let me be the one to step out and say, despite all evidence to the contrary, even if our hearts can't fully embrace it, God was present then. The providence of God was active then. God's love, God's power, God's provision, God's care, God's presence, God's sovereignty was all at work then. There has never been a time, there has never been a moment, there has never been a second when you were abandoned by God. Despite whatever way you were living, despite whatever lie we had believed, despite however, however people were treating you in that moment, God was still there. And again, I know for many of us this is this question, so what about that suffering then? Hang with me until next week. When I will not completely solve that question, but we will at least go there together. So here's how I want to kind of wrap up today and worship team, Zach, you come, come on back up. Jesus is an example for us that no matter how we live, no matter whether our world like Stan's world and Watts in 1977, no matter what's going on in our lives, God's providence is still at work. And Jesus is the perfect example of this. When it appears that God had been stopped, when, when God's voice, when a prophet hadn't spoken hundreds of years, Jesus showed up. Here's what I want you to hear very clearly today. Jesus is more than our example of God's providence. Yes. Yes, he is. But Jesus is more than our example because Jesus comes and confronts the oppressive narrative that we bought into. 
Unlike Adam and Eve who come to question God's goodness, Jesus goes to the cross trusting the providence of God. Adam and Eve stood before one tree and questioned God's goodness. Jesus went to another tree, never questioning the goodness of God. Say amen. And so because of this, Jesus confronts and defeats, not just as our example, but actually defeats this oppressive narrative. It's just up to you. God's not really good. God's not really present. Jesus confronts and defeats this lie. As Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Why? Because think about it. This way of understanding the world, this oppressive way of understanding the world, seems to nail Jesus to the cross. At the cross, it appears that this way of living, this oppressive system of how things work, triumphs at the cross. It appears the providence of God loses at the cross. Because the religious leaders, they're out for themselves. They send Jesus to the cross. The political leaders are just out for themselves, advancing power, authority. They send Jesus to the cross. Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, abandon him, sending Jesus to the cross. It's at the cross where it appears that way of living that humanity buys into in the garden ultimately triumphs. God is not good. Every every man, every woman for themselves, no matter who you step on, no matter who you have to throw on the bus, there are winners and there are losers. There's no providence. There's no goodness holding this world together. This is what seems to win at the cross. It's not just that Jesus is our example of God's providence. It's that Jesus defeats this at the cross because he takes it all unto himself. He seems to succumb to this on the cross. He seems to lose on the cross. And yet we come to see, we come to understand that it's at the victorious. We come to see that mysteriously the sign of defeat, the sign of torture, the sign of humiliation becomes a sign for us of God's provision, of God's providence, of God's care, of God's love. So Jesus isn't just our example. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is the one who goes to the tree, never doubting the providence of God to his So in a very real way, Jesus invites us through the cross to begin living once again from Eden. Jesus, in a very real sense, takes us back to the garden and say, remember, remember, God is good. God is providing. God will provide. God has provided for you. Again, one last word about suffering. For some of us this morning, this is, again, this is just this is too much of a stretch because we are still in Egypt. We feel under the thumb of somebody, circumstances, situations, something. 
are suffering. Some of you are legitimately suffering today. So it's hard for the cross to seem victorious to you. It seems maybe a symbol of your own suffering. So if I can just place in front of you once again the cross and say that the cross, yes, it is a sign of suffering for us, but it's a sign of God's suffering on our behalf. It's a sign of God stepping into our suffering. And ultimately, it's a sign that somehow mysteriously, God's providence is expressed through God's death. Through God's suffering. And then God's resurrection on the cross. You do not suffer alone this morning. this is why Paul can say in Philippians, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul. Paul who had been shipwrecked. Paul who had been abandoned. Paul who had been slandered. Paul who had been imprisoned. Paul who stoned, Paul who had been beaten, saying, I want to know the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because for Paul, the sufferings of Christ is evidence of God's providence, God's victory, God's goodness. It's what allows Paul to say in his letter to the Romans, we know that in all things God works for the, do you remember? The good. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Please do not let me sound trite to you today. Let me sound Christian-y or religious or cliche-y to you today. Paul says, in all things, God working for the good of those who love him. And this is the God who died on the cross. In all things. And so church, conviction in words for us today. There's convictions as we begin to learn that we have been living under this oppressive way of life. For some of us, the conviction is stop coveting. Stop living as if this life is up to you to fix, to solve, to provide for yourself. Stop wanting more than you have. Stop wanting what you think is best for you. Stop coveting. Start living as if God actually knows what's best for you. So maybe there's conviction, but there's some freedom for us today. There's some grace for us today. Our good God is at work. Our good God is providing. Our good God is present. Amen. I want you to leap encouraged today. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in you. Maybe some of you need to wrestle with something. You're convicted and repentance that needs to happen. But I want you to leave encouraged today that the world that you live in is held together by our God. That the job that you go back to, that you, mm, 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 
the roommate that you go back to, that uh, the need that's not met in your life, all of these somehow are held together by the providence of God. And none of these things have been forgotten, overlooked by our God. I want you to leave encouraged today that whatever you have been facing, whatever you are facing, God is present. God has not forgotten you. I want you to be encouraged today that even in those moments of pain and suffering in your past, those moments that feel hard to look at, God somehow was still at work then. The Judah, the Tamar, leads eventually to Jesus. God, we ask that you would Take these meager words. Take the truth of your scriptures today. Take the work of the Holy Spirit that's active in our lives. Take all of these things, God, and show us again your providence. Show us again your goodness. Show us again how you are caring for and providing for us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.